This morning we are in Matthew chapter 18. If you've been here, uh, you know we're studying through the book of Matthew. So we're in chapter 18. Our text is going to be verses 15 through 20. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Open your Bibles or navigate on your device. The topic, Jesus instructs his followers how to go after a brother who sins in the hope of restoring him to fellowship. The title of our message, to boldly go where one man can be restored. To have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning so far. Now we want to get into your word. We believe that your Holy Spirit is here to teach us, to reveal Jesus to us in these words that you had Matthew pen, uh, to show us, Lord, your love for every lost sinner and those in the body of Christ who sin, and to encourage us, Lord, to go after them in sincerity and love to bring them back into the protection and love of the flock. And so I pray, Lord, that we would understand this text in its context and that it would speak to our hearts about situations that we face today and will face tomorrow. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Father walks into his teenage son's room holding a small box. He confronts the boy asking him, is this yours? At first, the boy denies any knowledge of the box, even though his dad tells him that his mom found it in his room. It's a box of weed along with other drug paraphernalia. After several lying denials, the father, now agitated, asks, who taught you how to do this stuff? There's that dramatic pause, and then the boy exclaims, you, all right, I learned it by watching you. How many remember that ad? It's a terrifying ad to me because I had gotten caught with marijuana, uh, and my dad didn't smoke marijuana, so I had no excuse, but anyway... It's the 1987 public service ad by Partnership for a Drug-Free America. The dad's authority to confront his son was compromised by his own behavior. So let me ask all of us a question. Is our authority to confront other believers who are in sin compromised by our own behavior? It's an important question to ponder as we approach our text. We're in the well-known passage about church discipline, about how to deal with believers who are deliberately sinning. As we will see, it all begins and therefore in some sense depends upon each of us as individuals being not just willing but able to go privately to a sinning brother or sister and confront their sin. We need to be like those described in Galatians 6.1 where we read, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual, meaning walking with the Lord in the spirit, If we are, we may hope to go and gain back a brother. If we are not spiritual, we may not even feel the Spirit's prompting to go in the first place. Let's be among the spiritual God can use. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you've been appointed to go and thereby gain a brother who is in sin. And number two, we've been authorized to go and thereby gain a brother who is in sin. In verse 15, let's talk about our appointment to go. Now, Jesus had just told his disciples a parable about the value God the Father puts upon every single child of God. He compared our Father to a shepherd who will leave the 99 sheep in order to go after the one straying sheep to bring it back to the safety of the shepherd and of the flock. Our text describes one of the primary ways God goes after those who stray in the church age in which we live. The remarkable thing The thing to sit up and take heed of is that he sends you and I after them. We are the first plan of action. 
Don't miss this. The process we call church discipline depends first and foremost upon you and me as individuals. Before two or three others get involved and way before the whole church gets involved, it's just you and the sinner, mano e mano, or womano e womano, as the case may be. You didn't know I was bilingual, did you? Yeah. Uh, Verse 15 says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. The issue here is sin, something the Bible clearly and unmistakably defines as sin. If it's something else, say a personality issue or some other disagreement, for sure get together and try to sort it out But if there's no sin, the resolve is, as much as lies in you, to be at peace with the other person. It's not a matter for getting others involved or for church discipline. Someone who identifies as a brother or sister in Jesus Christ is committing sin, or you suspect very strongly they are. You are appointed by God to go to them and to tell them. This is a responsibility that falls on each and every believer. It's not just for the pastor or for an elder or for a deacon. All of us are so appointed. The words against you might not be in your translation. They're not in all of the old manuscripts we have from which we translate the Bible. The context argues for a broader application than a sin or sins against you personally. Jesus wasn't talking about a personal offense as if you could ignore the fact a brother or sister is in sin if it isn't directly against you. All sin by other believers does directly impact the body of Christ, including you and I. It can impact the body of Christ by being a terrible testimony to non-believers. Ever have somebody, you, inter, uh, you uh, invite somebody to church and say, well, what church do you go to? I go to Calvary Hanford. I know a guy that goes to that church, wow, and then they just walk away, bad testimony. It happens from time to time. And it can also impact the body of Christ by grieving the Holy Spirit and thereby hindering his work in the church. The telling of the sin is to be done privately. And that means without consulting others or asking their advice or counsel by first telling them all about the person's sin. If he or she hears you, you have gained your brother or your sister. The goal and your desire ought to be to gain the person. Now, the word gain, it's borrowed from the world of commerce, where it's used to describe accumulating wealth. A brother or a sister in Jesus Christ is far too valuable to let alone in their sin. It will endanger them. It can destroy them and with them those around them. No, they have strayed and they need to be told in order to be restored for their own good as well as everyone else's. They need to be accumulated, as it were, back into the fellowship of believers. So you and I are to go to them. And you know what? Why wouldn't we go to them since we love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we love them? It seems natural in a supernatural sense, that we would go to them. Well, one reason we might not go is simply because we've been taught or we assume that it's the job of some church leader. The answer to that is no, not at step one, not at ground zero. This is a word to every Christian to go and to deal with sin 
in the lives of others that you love for their own good and the good of the body. And another reason we might not go is because we hate confrontation. How many times have you said that? I just hate confrontation. Actually, some of you love confrontation, but uh, for the most part, people, I hate confrontation, or I'm not wired that way, or I'm not really good at that. Uh, It's too bad that's not a valid excuse. The Lord said, you know somebody's sinning, you love them, you love me, go talk to them about it. And then there just might be the reason I alluded to earlier, if I am sinning, I'm afraid the person I'm going to tell their sin will turn it back on me and in a way say, hey, I learned it from you. Or who are you to talk, that kind of a thing. None of us are sinless, but there is a difference between being a sinner and habitually committing deliberate sin, living in sin. We need to get it together, confess our sin, let the Lord cleanse us from all our unrighteousness, and then go and tell our brother or sister their fault. God wants to use you, he wants to use us to restore our brother and our sister, to gain them back. Each of us is far too precious for any of us to ignore sin either in our own lives or in the lives of others. Now the remaining verses, verses 16 through 20, we've been appointed to go and thereby gain a brother who is in sin. Let's say you go and the person won't hear you, meaning they refuse to repent of their sin. Now what do you do? Well, in verse 16 it says, if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. While we can identify at least five distinct steps in this process, that does not mean we must rapidly move from one step to the next or that we even go in order. You may, for example, go privately to the sinning brother or sister multiple times before you realize that they are refusing to repent. We're not trying to check things off here. This is not a mechanical process. It's an organic, gracious process. Uh, the goal being restoration. And so uh, I may have to go more than once depending on the particular situation. Maybe the individual says, oh, you're right, I repent, I'll never, you know, I'll, I'll get out of this situation that I'm in, I'll quit sinning, and then some time goes by and you find out that they, they didn't do that. And then you go again and uh, so, you know, it, it isn't as mechanical as we might think. Or it may be that the sin is so obvious, so blatant, that there is no need for a one-on-one, but rather you start with a larger group to seek the sinner's repentance. When Paul visited the, uh, wrote to the church in Corinth, church that he had founded, he had heard about this situation in Corinth where a certain young man was living in incestuous sin with his father's wife. Uh, And the the congregation was all about it because they thought that they were being big-hearted and gracious and tolerant. And Paul said, here's what I'd like you to do. Imagine you're this guy on Sunday morning and they're reading Paul's letter. He says, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to kick him out of the church and turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Can you hold that thought while we, (laughs) you know, can you read that again? And so there was no, Paul didn't say, hey, somebody needs to go to him privately. And, and talk to him, and then maybe take two or three more. No, Paul said, hey, you guys are way beyond that. Just get this guy out to where the Lord can deal with him. And so this process is a, uh, more of a principles than process, if, if you understand me. There is a process, there's a five-step process, but we're trying to determine the principles underlying that process so that we understand how to apply it in each and every case. Uh, 
In the textbook case, if they continue in sin after you privately go to them and tell them, you are to enlist the help of others who are spiritual. Now the one or two more are to function as witnesses. I take that to mean that ideally, they don't know about the person's sin. You haven't prepped them ahead of time. You haven't stacked the deck against the brother you're confronting. They may in fact determine that your claims are without merit. Remember, there needs to be actual deliberate sin, not just a personal offense or hurt feelings. Somebody comes and says, I, you know, I, I need you to come with me to confront Pastor Gene. Well, what happened? Well, I was at uh, Walmart and I waved to Pastor Gene and he ignored me. Okay, yeah, I, I want the church to, I want to kick him out of the church. Uh, no, we're not gonna do that. I mean, there are a lot of things that offend people, right? We're, we're, we're like a touchy society. Have you noticed that? People are really touchy. Waving to other. I just, every now and then when I'm driving, I just start waving. <laughs> Through the windshield, you know. The other night I was, and then I could, you catch me, I'm squinting. I, said, I think I recognize that car, but I don't, you know, I can't see through the tinted windows, you know, that kind of a thing. So, uh, you know, people get offended all the time. Uh, this is not what we're talking about. If you're offended, go, hey, say, hey, Pastor Gene, did you, did you see me that I waved to you? And then what am I gonna say? Yeah, I don't wanna wave to you. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say no, I didn't, I barely, you know, know my own name half the time, you know? And so, so don't, that's not what we're talking about. And so sometimes you go, hey, you know, let's have this confrontation and, and the witnesses are gonna say, hey, this is, not, this is not really worthy of church discipline. It has to be a sin situation. And so the witnesses are, are there in that function as well. The witnesses or, witness, or the witness or witnesses will also be needed if things don't get resolved and they proceed to telling the whole fellowship. They can give testimony that things were handled biblically with grace and love. That the person went and tried to resolve the sinful situation and now we all understand that there's sin and, and this brother or sister just won't repent. So verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Hear them indicates that the witnesses agree their sin and they too urge the person to repent. You know, there's none of this neutral stuff like, well, I kind of believe you and I kind of believe you. I mean, there's either sin or there isn't. It, it, it's, this is, we're talking about black and white issues here. Uh, and, and so the witnesses, they have to get involved. They have to commit. If the person still refuses, then the church must be told. Again, there's no rush to get to this point, not usually anyway. You might make several attempts with the witnesses before telling it to the church. Now, there's a wide variety of biblical scholarship on exactly how to tell the church. Some say it is during a regular service of the church with believers and non-believers in the assembly. And back in the green room, I was joking that when I got to this point, I was gonna say, and so five minutes, right after the service, we have three people who are here this morning that we're going, no, but we're not gonna do that. 
But that's the kind of thing that people say. It's like, well, uh, you know, thanks, Dennis, and let's have some announcements, and now we have some church discipline matters to attend to. And, and there's churches that do it that way. Some say it's a special meeting of the church's believing members called specifically to deal with the discipline. Uh, years ago, just as a footnote, we had a situation that we were dealing with as a church that our leadership felt needed to be brought to the church. We were at the YMCA, and I remember at the end of our services, each service I said, hey, we're going to deal with something, uh, you know, X, Y, Z, and it has to do with church discipline. If you consider yourself a member of our fellowship, please stay uh, and then we'll get into that. And so we, that's sort of how we handled that at that time. And then some suggest it can be a smaller group within the larger church comprised of those believers who have regular contact with the sinning person, such as their Bible study group or their home group, uh, their fellow ushers or Sunday school teachers, that kind of thing. There's also scholarly disagreement on exactly what you tell the church. I can only say that for me, there would be a variety of ways you might tell it to the church depending upon the person and the particulars. And since the goal at this point is to still see the person restored, the principle to follow is to keep the number of people who know as small as possible, but as large as necessary. I know that's, that's hard, that's a hard call, but as small as possible, as large as necessary. What do you tell the church? I think you tell the church their sin and the steps taken to restore them thus far. You tell the church in order to enlist everyone who needs to know that the person is in sin in order that everyone told might then urge them to repent and thus be deputized as agents of restoration. It's kind of like, you know, it's, an, it's a deputization basically. It says, hey, we've been dealing with brother or sister so-and-so. We've come to this point. There's an absolute refusal to repent. There's definite sin. Uh, and so now we need your help uh, they didn't listen to me. They didn't listen to the witnesses. We need everybody, when you run into them, when you see them, to say, hey, we love you and we want you to repent. You need to repent of your sin. Uh, and so it's, a, it's, it's getting everybody involved for the purpose of restoration. And really, it's only doing what you would do on your own if you knew about the sin. Because remember, we started with if a brother or sister is in sin and you know about it. So now we're just letting everybody know what the situation is, who needs to know, so that we can all be that brother who is going to that sinner. Throughout this process, we're to be thinking and acting as one in order to gain the person who is sinning. Uh, verse 17 goes on and it says, if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. I don't need to tell you that this too is a source of disagreement and controversy. Here's my take. Jesus was talking to Jews, and from a Jewish perspective, a heathen was a Gentile, a person who was never a member of God's spiritual community in the first place. A tax collector was a Jew who deliberately chose to abandon God's people in order to live like a Gentile. Now, that's helpful to me in this sense. I don't know if the sinning brother or sister is refusing to repent because they can't or because they won't. I don't know if they are like a heathen, someone who never was truly saved, a tear among the wheat, and they can't repent of their specific sin because they first need to come to Jesus to be saved. 
or if they're a genuine believer in Jesus Christ who has the Holy Spirit but who won't yield to him, but instead they choose to continue in deliberate sin the way a tax collector, uh, a Jew who became a tax collector decided to divorce him or himself from the uh, believing community. Either way, I'm to treat the person who continues unrepentant in deliberate sin as I would treat an unsaved person, but not just like I would treat any unsaved person. Listen to this passage about church discipline from 1 Corinthians chapter five. It's verses nine through 13. It's very instructive about how to treat a believer as an unbeliever. Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Those who are outside God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. And so Paul says there's a, a big gap between what we would this isn't a technical term, but you would call it the average non-believer, maybe your neighbor or your coworker who doesn't profess to know Jesus Christ, who you are evangelizing and you're maybe inviting them over for dinner and, so, and they're saying, hey, what's that on in the background? That's a Dennis Agajanian video. You wanna watch this, you know? And, or maybe you know, you've got Franklin Graham preaching the gospel or that kind of a thing uh, where you're, you're trying to have social contact with those individuals in order to bring them to Christ. Uh, Paul says, it's a little different when you've got somebody who, said, who says, hey, I'm a Christian. Uh, you have to treat them a little bit differently. He says, don't have that kind of fellowship with them. You need to instead just be urging them to repent. You're to treat a professing Christian who is sinning as an unbeliever but with a good deal more caution than someone who doesn't claim to be a Christian. What did Paul mean by putting away from yourselves? That's not as obvious as you might think either. Most scholars say it means removing them from the church or what we commonly would call excommunication. Dr. J. Adams, revered by some as the guru of church discipline, says of removal, some think that the disciplined person is not to be allowed to attend the worship service of the church. That's wrong. What Paul means is that he is removed from the care and discipline of the church. He's no longer to be considered a member. But since he's to be treated as a heathen and since heathen are permitted to attend the services of the church, unless he is acting divisively, he should be allowed to hear the preaching of the word and should be witnessed to by the members treating him like any unbeliever who enters. Now, regardless what we think removal means, whether at a church service or in public or in private, we're to continue to urge the person to repent, treating them as we would treat an unbeliever, but keeping the passage I quoted from 1 Corinthians in mind, which tells us to be more guarded against them than we would a person who has never confessed Jesus Christ. Very interesting. Another writer says this, not to have fellowship or even social contact with the unrepentant brother does not exclude all contact. When there is opportunity to admonish him and call him back, the opportunity should be taken. But the contact should be for the purpose of admonishment and no other. You therefore put him out and call him back 
to keep the sinning brother out of fellowship until he repents, also keep calling him back in the hopes that he will. Now, I don't have to tell you how very, very hard this is and how very sad at the same time. This isn't just, you know, I said it's not a mechanical process and anybody who understands this, if you know what we're talking about, I mean, this is heartbreaking stuff. You're talking about somebody who's a Christian, professes to be a Christian, someone you love, maybe even a family member. I mean, your heart is broken in this kind of a situation. But the difficulty and the grief does not excuse us from obedience. The question that always comes up and might be on your mind is, why don't we see more church discipline? Meaning, of course, why aren't we telling the church on a more regular basis? Well, as a practical matter, by the time we get to that point in discipline, usually the person has already left the fellowship and most or all the believers he or she had fellowship with know about their sin. In other words, we've initiated the earlier steps and the person leaves on their own rather than repenting. It's therefore, in my mind, unnecessary to tell the church, the whole church is protected since the person is gone and is not affecting them, and the smaller part of the church that needs to know, knows. There are always conversations going on at the earlier one-on-one and two or three-on-one stages. Whenever we hear about sin, we deal with it as graciously and as mercifully as we can. Now, by we, I now mean me and the leadership here in the church. If you don't see us doing anything, it might be that we don't know about it. There's a lot of things that happen that we don't know about it. As far as I know, I do not have the gift of the word of knowledge. So uh, you might think, uh, this is why I always, I I love Pastor Chuck, Pastor Chuck Smith, but I always hesitated to say anything to him because I always thought he knew everything about me more than I knew about myself. You know, he was just in that beautiful, expressive face, oh, praise the Lord. And then I thought he was gonna say, and Gene, repent. But, uh, and so I would just always, you know, I just, you know, just chuck from a distance, that was me, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, and, and so I don't have the word of knowledge, so you're clean around me. I'm, I'm not thinking, you know, some people, because, just because you're the pastor, people think you know everything about you. Uh, you're, you're free to say hello to me, uh, you know, not a problem. And so a lot of times we just don't know about it, or it might be that we do know something more about it than you do, and, and we are actually dealing with it. Now, verses 18, 19, 20, they're familiar to us, but usually they're taken out of context and they're quoted as standalone promises. In fact, they reveal how and why the church on earth has the authority to deal with brothers and sisters who sin. And so verse 18, surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This was a Jewish saying of that day Uh, Jesus' disciples would have understood it to mean that when the church follows God's principles and this process for disciplining its members, it can be assured they are acting with the prior authorization of heaven. This is a statement of prior authorization. This is saying, church, this is the process and you have prior authorization to utilize this process and as you go through it with grace and mercy, you are doing it with heaven's authority. I've confronted folks over the years and a common retort by them is, it's none of your business what I do. Another is, it's between me and God. 
That is not true. We are all connected as a human body is connected. You can't just come and become a part of the body of Christ and then do whatever you want and say, this is none of your business. This doesn't affect you. In fact, it does. God has given us instruction how to deal with sin in our midst. It's never a none of your business private thing. It's never just between a person and God. Verse 19, again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. I'd like one of you to agree with me that I would get the Corvette that I've always wanted. Thank you, God bless you brother. Now this certainly can have application to prayer in a general sense, but we need to be careful, and you see why, to temper it by everything else the Bible says about answered prayer. It must be according to God's will. Otherwise, this verse gives the false impression that God is bound to do anything and everything two of us demand of him. I don't expect to see a Corvette anytime soon. In context, if two of you, referring back to the witnesses in verse 16, agree on earth, they're representing God and their decision that the sinning brother or sister has either repented or has refused to repent has authority. And then verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. First, I wanna point out something we sometimes overlook in this verse. I mean, we know it and it's obvious, but we should mention it. Jesus claims an attribute of deity. He claims to be everywhere believers are, or we would say he's omnipresent. He is omnipresent because Jesus is God. And so it's a great, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, Jesus never said he was God. He nowhere says that. Well, here he says, wherever two believers are gathered, anywhere at any time, where is he? He's there with them. How is that possible? Because as God in his deity, he is omnipresent. Now, certainly it's okay to claim this as a promise that whenever we pray together, Jesus manifests himself in a special way. Nothing wrong there. But in context, again, this is referring to the two or three witnesses we spoke of in the discipline process. It's a word about our authority as believers to carry out what God has commanded. The Father and the Son have delegated us their authority to go to try to gain the straying sheep. Now my desire today is to present this text and this subject in as precise a way as I can so as to, on the one hand, make us understand that the process of church discipline is not as cut and dried, it's not so mechanical as some would have us think, but on the other hand, it is incredibly important we apply church discipline both in order to try to gain the sinning brother as well as to protect the members of the fellowship. My theme, however, is something a lot more individual It's for us to understand that church discipline is me and it's you loving the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, keeping ourselves spiritual so we are ready and able to go after the stray and tell him or her their sin and gain them back. You know, really, I said this is a five-step process. We could add a sixth step and that is at the beginning, self-discipline. Just don't sin. Don't decide to sin. Don't choose to sin. Don't live in habitual sin. Don't put yourself out there where someone ought to come after you. Keep yourself in the love of God and then we don't have to worry about this. And so uh, 
But having said that, church discipline depends upon you and I as individuals being willing and able to make that first step, that first contact with the person that we hear in sin. The first step isn't to call the elder or the Bible study leader or the pastor and say, I just found out so-and-so is living in sin. It's off of my conscience now. Why don't you go deal with it? You found out so that you could go to that person. You found out for a reason because God made an appointment with you and him to meet together. Church discipline isn't just what the church does officially at a service through its leaders. It is me and you loving someone enough to want to do what God says in order to restore them. Let's pray together.